50 people clapping. Feels like being at a golf tournament. (laughs) You feel the love? (laughs) Oh man, what weird times we're in. Uh, So we've got the all clear, other rooms engaged with us and stuff. We've got to coordinate all these things and so trying to keep track of uh, all this stuff, but I think that worked out well because uh, then more than one location got to hear what you had to say about Celebrate Recovery, which is an amazing ministry and one that we're seeing so much fruit from, so uh, glad that everyone's being able to hear about it as well. So thanks for Jeremy. Thanks to Jeremy for stepping in. I think he found out yesterday or the day before, hey, buddy, you got announcements, so um, that's how it's been going. We're trying to learn how to do church all over again. I've walked out of my office about three, four times forgetting my notes. Then, oh yeah, that's right. I didn't even print them out yet and all this kind of stuff. So we'll figure it out. We'll get the rust off and the, the cobwebs clear. Um, with what, uh, Jeremy said and, uh, also what, uh, Janet said over in the B. Lee Center, I just want to mention that, um, our information is changing, uh, reopening. <laughs> When to reopen a church is completely dominating and consuming so much of our work time. Uh, so rest assured, we are always looking for what are we going to do about this and, and when. And so as that information changes, we would like to be able to change even midweek if we need to. So um, right now, we believe we have everybody's email address that attends faith Um some of this announcement, let me say, see if I can say this tactfully. Not all of our announcements will always be on Facebook. Let me leave it at that. So um, as you, if you're not sure that we have your email address, just double up and just shoot an email to Dory. Um, as Jeremy said, you can go to our website, our newly designed website that Pastor Tom has put together. It looks pretty awesome. There's easy ways to just find contact us and say, just want to make sure you have my email address in case I miss an announcement. So um, so just do us a favor and do everything you can to stay in communication with us. As I said, not everything we say will be on Facebook. So uh, let me just dive right into our message, our time in the word of the Lord this morning, because I've really been wrestling with an introduction. And I think the Lord is just saying, stop worrying about the introduction and just dive in. So no cute setups. No warming up the crowd to get them ready to hear. What we're basically wanting to dive into is the stark contrast that God's people have when it comes to that our world is trying to keep us on probably a two-week news cycle. It's not just since COVID. It's not just since um, Black Lives Matter movements and other um, protests and those sorts of things. But we are, are conditioning our world to care about things for about a two-week window. Um, you know, we hear in the summer times, we always hear about the California wildfires, which are a legit problem. They're real that no one's, there's no conspiracy that's showing fl- fake flames on a YouTube video. Those things really happen. And, and, and then a couple weeks later, we forget, we're like, I thought the whole state of California was burning down. Well, we haven't heard anything about it. I guess it isn't happening. So the news cycle moves on every couple of weeks, but, but God's people, and I think even our world is starting to wake up to the fact that our problems don't just go away after a couple weeks. A piece of legislation is passed or we, uh, we, we have a particular movement or a protest and all of a sudden we fix the problem, we moved away, we moved on. That isn't the way it's going. 
And so it's been my heart's desire, it's been the desire of the leadership here at Faith to how are we discipling God's people to navigate these times where the world and, and, the, and the political spheres and all of those things are trying to manage us through a flow of information to, to help us to feel what we're supposed to feel when we're supposed to fear, care what we're supposed to care about when we're supposed to care about it. You and I have a source more constant that just cuts down a thread right down through the middle of this all that isn't manipulated by the roller coaster of information that we get or the causes that come our way. You and I are, are called by the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we started off in this kind of new era at faith in January, I had mentioned that everything that we base what we're as, as much as God's grace allows us to, we're going to base everything we do off the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And for some of you, I know it was for me, you hear that and you think, okay, does that mean we're just saying Jesus died for your sins? If you accept him as savior, you'll have a home in heaven. That's sort of the simplified version of the gospel that we've held on to and that we uh, in churches t- so often teach our people you need to be able to tell that story and to and to help people pray the sinner's prayer and help them get saved. And then once that happens, then we just move into things like small groups and join choirs and go to Bible studies and have potlucks and things like that. Then the Christian life thing just happens. Before the believer, the, the call of the gospel, the presentation of the gospel mingled with the application of the gospel doesn't go anywhere. In fact, it gets deeper. It calls us more, uh, uh, more, more passionately, more, more intricately, more precisely. It never moves on from the problem that is plaguing our entire world. Our world is, is, is struggling and suffering through it, and we are too. It's not like we're immune to it, but they're struggling through issues of death and loss when it comes to income and jobs and our country and all of these things and and racism and all of these very legit, very real problems that are happening that some things we're touched with here in Maine and some things we're not. All of these very real problems get addressed at the foot of the cross. So the focus of the church of Jesus Christ must be as we grow in our presentation of the gospel, which of course needs work and skill as, as our times, our cultures change right outside our door. I mean, you, you know that it's changing so rapidly right now, right? We don't just scream Jesus to people or yell at them about hellfire or, or cast judgment on everybody every time they breathe, thinking that's going to do the trick. It isn't going to happen. How does it start? How does it carry more weight? It carries more weight through our personal application. When we're allowing the gospel to confront our own lives and the issues that are always before us and applying it to to us, not just them and those. They need the gospel. They need rescuing. Yes, they do. And we need to be able to proclaim it. This isn't a, a, a message of, of re- retreating and going into the cave and, and zipping our little Christian mouths because we can't be offensive. This isn't where this is going. No doubt the gospel needs to be proclaimed to the masses, but it isn't just for them and those. It's for you and me. 
So to better define this term gospel, which will need to uh, to be repeated over and over and over again as we continue to minister and work and grow together as a body of Christ all throughout the future, I'm borrowing this particular definition from Pastor Ray Ortland. And he says this, he says, this is a snapshot of the gospel of which I'm referring to this morning. God, through the perfect life, atoning death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, rescues all his people from the wrath of God into peace with God. This is the part that we shy away from in the gospel, that that God was wrathful, that he was angry at sin, and that Jesus stood in the gap and, and lived the perfect life and laid that perfect life down. As Gus prayed earlier, beating death, resurrected to God's glory, thus appeasing the wrath of God or satisfying the wrath of God. And with that comes this promise of the full restoration of his created order forever. All to the praise and the glory of his grace. The, the point that I hope to make for us this morning in the little bit of time that we have together is that we carry a far greater responsibility to the message that we truly carry than we often realize. Of course, America is at a crossroads. Yes, she is in constant need of defense from those that love her and cherish her. And yes, the Lord has used this beautiful nation for his glory in such powerful evangelical, evangelistic ways as, as the, as the glory of the gospel has spread throughout the world, like lighting a fire because of the, the work that God has done just in the last few centuries in this nation. But you and I must be committed to proclaim the, that gospel that launched all this, that spread out from beyond, that we must be committed to proclaim that gospel of the risen Savior in the tone and the manner in which he did, aiming to achieve the salvation of all people. And that aim is over our own fears, our legitimate fears and our legitimate frustrations with all that we see going on. If we're going to set out to establish our faith in the gospel, we need not, we, we not only need to begin with the end in mind as we talked about last week from 1 Peter 1, but we also have to begin with the past in view. Let's go to our text this morning in, in 1 Peter 1. I'm going to pick up where we left off last week, which was in verse 9. When Peter said that all of this was aiming towards an outcome, all of this was going in a direction. Remember, Peter is addressing the diaspora. He's, he's talking to those spread about in what we see now as modern Turkey, and they're in all these different areas, feeling, feeling spiritually homeless, nationally homeless, just disconnected from so many things that you and I take for granted, having this center in our soul and in our community and in all the things that we appreciate. And so he writes to them with an end in mind. He says that all of these things, the acts of their faith, in verse 9, would obtain the outcome of their faith, of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So in verse 10, we pick up new material. He says, concerning this salvation, concerning this rescue that we've been given, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours, was to be searched and in, uh, the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, 
inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating what he predicted. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, always in that order. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. I don't know how you would encourage the diaspora. I don't know how you would want to lift up their spirits and, and unify. You think about it. You're doing it through one letter and you're hoping it gets to where it's supposed to go. You're trusting in the movement of the spirit that Peter is reacting to what God has laid on his heart to do. And he writes, he pens these words and he sends them out. What is the tactic he uses to launch all this as we're still in his introduction? He gives them a history lesson. He talks to them about prophets that have come and gone. I had the blessing of of uh, living in Boston for many years. In fact, I've lived in New England all my life. And I don't know about you guys, those of you that have been here for a, a long time, perhaps all your lives. I feel like we're always one or two blocks away from some incredible amount of American history. And I wouldn't say I know my history that well. There's so many around me that know it so much better than me. But this idea of living in this part of the country, just knowing that so much happened here, fills me with this kind of awe and this responsibility. When I was living in Boston, I don't know how many times we wandered the, the Freedom Trail or saw the USS Constitution. We've taken our kids down through there a lot recently in the last several years. We've spent some time in the old stomping grounds, if you will just being amazed by its history. We've been through D.C. I don't know if you've been through there before, but I'm, I'm, I'm in awe of the enormity of our government, but I mean of the buildings and, and all that that represents and just the, you feel like this is a strong nation. You're walking around, you're going, I cannot believe all that the Lord has done here in just a couple of centuries. And it's amazing when you think about the things that have happened and, and, and the founding fathers and where they've gone and where they've been. You see, the importance of knowing history or being in touch with the history, it fuels something up within you that you feel the responsibility to keep something going, to be moving forward. But there's a motivation that comes with it that this history provides. Every time I'm around it, I want to find a, a, you know, I don't know my weapons, but something with a bayonet on it. You know, I'm just thinking back to the Minutemen and all these things. And you just want, it's not that long ago. It's amazing. Peter is giving a history lesson to his people because he knows what that does to stoke within them the responsibility to keep this thing moving forward. You see, the gospel's history has even greater weight than what we experience in the United States of America. There's an importance of you and I knowing our spiritual history, knowing where all of this came from and knowing where it's going. So that's why Peter says concerning this salvation, this rescue, this thing that has given you a home, even though you don't have one, it's given you purpose. It's given you eternal life, even though your lives are being threatened, this salvation Salvation is an interesting concept here because in the Old Testament, salvation was always wrapped around an individual or a nation. Whenever it's used in the language, it's it's looking to a person, someone in in physical uh, appearance to rescue a nation or a people. Or it's a nation that's going to stand head and shoulders above others. And so salvation to the Hebrew mind meant something tangible. Something I can see. I'm going I'm to wait in our, in, in our vernacular. It would be something like the next election. 
And that was the, the Hebrew mindset, the Hebrew thinking that it was demonstrated so greatly in the powerful figures of men like Moses and David and so many others. Now the New Testament comes in, in the Greek, it expands this concept of salvation to go beyond just what we can see physically, although that is certainly addressed in our salvation. But it applies to the threat against anything that uh, comes against our promise of eternal life. So we see this in Christ, who is the deliverance from the power of sin or the power of death and the power of even Satan himself. So as Peter is talking about salvation, he's expanding on a concept that so many of them would be familiar with, that now Moses and David and so many others have now become Christ. And even though he's no longer physically here, he is rescuing us, he is saving us from the things in the world that we can't see, laying up for us a home in heaven, one that is promised to us that we will see soon. Peter gives us a little insight into this history by saying, the prophets searched and inquired carefully. He says they, they investigated, they craved this understanding. And as I'm looking at this, I'm going, you know, I never thought of that. I think of a prophet as just getting the download from God and it comes out of his mouth or his hands. God said, you all need to do this. Blah, do it. If you don't, this is what he said would happen. If you do, this is what he said would happen. There, I've done my part. I'm going to go back to watching Netflix now. That's what I picture prophets being. Peter says, which is makes perfect sense. If you're the prophet and you're carrying the weight of, imagine the, I don't know about you, but it's sort of the intimidation of, I wonder if God's going to wake me up tonight with his message. Or I wonder if it's coming tomorrow. I wonder if I won't hear from him for a year. The awesome responsibility of needing to be ready, keeping your antennas up, keeping your your life in the flow of being able to hear the voice of the Lord because you've been handpicked to be his prophet. And imagine the, uh, the, the, the in a sense, kind of the, the humble frustration that comes with, I'm writing things down, but I don't even understand what I'm writing down. I know I'm addressing the contemporary problems of the day. You know, don't obey this king or make sure that you as a people do this and that kind of thing. But I keep pointing towards a future salvation. There is a rescuer coming. I don't know what he looks like. I don't know when he's going to arrive. I don't know what city he's coming from, any of those things. And so I'm writing down these kind of vague truths. And and, and I don't understand who it is, what he looks like when he's coming. So Peter says, that created a craving in them to know. They studied diligently, they researched, and then somewhere along the lines, we're being told here by Peter that either the Holy Spirit or an angel or somebody comforted them, if you can even call it this, by saying, hey, listen, you're not gonna know. You are serving a future generation. What you are doing now is going to pay off way down the road. Now, there's a human sense of, okay, I'm a part of something bigger. That's a blessing. I don't know if you've noticed this, but that's how we're wired. We always look for something bigger to, to be a part of, to be in the flow of, to answer to. So the prophets probably found some comfort in that. But at the same time, they're like, you mean in my lifetime with my own eyes, I won't see the fulfillment of these things? That could be quite depressing as well. Fortunately, the same spirit of Christ, and again, another interesting phrase that we see here in the New Testament about prophets of old, the Holy Spirit is not just a New Testament presence, 
The same spirit of Christ became the wind that filled the sails of these prophets. Peter is saying that, that the Holy Spirit moves them along. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon. We always see came upon in the Old Testament. Where in the New Testament, those that after Pentecost that are in Christ, he dwells in, he moves with, he shines light on. There was more work for the Spirit to do in the New Testament. So the Holy Spirit came upon the prophets and, and, and was like wind in their sails. The Spirit comes. This is kind of our tangential application of this. The, the Spirit propels boats who have hoisted their sails. The prophets needed to stay ready. They needed to stay available so that the Holy Spirit, as his wind would blow through, would catch that sail and move that boat along. The motion a boat will experience without a sail hoisted is the tossing and turning of the waters. That's the only way that boat's going to move. The only thing that's going to cut through that is a lifted sail that, that metaphorically speaking, the Holy Spirit can blow through and move the ship of our salvation in the right direction. You and I need to stay ready to hear the voice of the Lord. I'm so uh, struck every time I hear so many people struggling to find the, the will of God. We love that phrase, like, what's the will of God for my life? And now in contemporary Christianity, I have so many people that, that, that I hear that, that give people hope. God has a plan for your life. And it's true. God has a will for us. He has a plan for us, all this. But they're just waiting for it to download, waiting for it to download. And while they're doing that and they haven't hoisted a sail, their boat is going like this. And the Lord's like, give me, give me something to work with. Get, get your nose in the scriptures, be around God's people, pray for them, pray for this, pray for this answer to come. Make yourself available to my leading. Peter has already told us in verse four, if we make ourselves available to this salvation, if we have received the salvation, verse four says that we have received an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled and unfading, kept secured, locked in heaven for you. You see, we have a far more miraculous heritage to cherish than even the amazing birth of our nation, which is so near and dear to our hearts. And as we're seeing right outside our doors, the hearts of men and women may fail to preserve the tenets of our great American experiment. But God has promised through the sealing of the promise of the Holy Spirit that the church will never fail. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, that he will build his church and the gates of the government or the gates of society or the gates of any of these lesser things will not prevail against it. Why? Because the gates of hell won't. And that's our ultimate enemy. The question for us as American believers today needs to be, If the Lord is going to preserve us as a people, if he's going to preserve the church of Jesus Christ, what kind of church am I expecting him to preserve? Do I see in the Hebrews passage or in others that just my idea of church is what's to be preserved, that he has promised that I'm not to lose out on my time frames or my locations or any of those kinds of things? While all of those are incredible inconvenience to us and a pain to go through, is that ultimately the erosion of our church. The classic writer Tozer says that way before COVID was even a concept or a threat, 
He says, a widespread revival of the kind of Christianity we know today in America might prove to be a moral tragedy from which we would not recover in a hundred years. Please hear my heartbeat in this. I want to have church back. I want to have so many people. I've always loved the big crowds and the energy that comes from it. I love that sort of thing. But it became more apparent to us as we were going through this that what do we need to feel? What screws being tightened do we need to endure? How is the Lord raising us up to build us up, up some calluses to be able to fight even worse times to come? Going back to Ortland, the pastor I quoted earlier, he's commenting on this Tozer quote. And he says, what is there in our churches that deserves to survive? What is there in our churches that can survive? There are things in our churches that deserve and can survive. That's not the point he's making. But he's asking, are we willing to weed some of those things out that we've hung on to? Any church of any denomination today that falls short of the gospel of Christ in either, see if this sounds familiar, doctrine or culture will inevitably collapse under the extreme pressures of our times. The gospel's history, knowing our gospel's history, is serving the greater purpose. The prophets themselves, they were serving us, not receiving the payoff of the immediate satisfaction of knowing if it counted or if it worked other than the promise that it would. Secondly, I would say that Peter is telling us that we need to preserve the gospel's legacy. In verse 12, he says, partway through it, he says, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. We have had such an incredible legacy throughout the centuries of, of great preachers. Those that have been faithful to carry the message of Jesus Christ. Some eloquently and some just diligently because they weren't that great at speaking or anything. But the, the point is that the gospel has arrived to you and to me today. Peter is saying that it arrived to those that were in these, these um, exiled lands. It has arrived to you today in the hands of capable, faithful ministers of the word of God. God is going to see to it that that always happens. We've said goodbye to some great national and worldwide leaders for the, for the church of Jesus Christ lately. We, we saw, uh, Billy Graham's passing. And I don't know about you, but I just, I see him as like a monument in the sense that with his passing, I wondered if this great fundamental shift would happen because of his, uh, uh, consistent and compelling voice for the gospel of Jesus Christ. More recently, we've said goodbye to Ravi Zacharias, who has done incredible work for uh, the the, the um, apologetic, if you will, of the gospel mission, the knowledge of the word of God. And so you wonder, as these great faithful leaders move on, will God raise up another generation? We see it happening right before our eyes. We see more and more younger preachers getting a, a greater handle on orthodox theology and not straying away just because of their age and those sorts of things that we can have faith that as the scriptures say in Romans ten fifteen, Paul is quoting the passage. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So if you say, well, I don't know if I'm called to be an evangelist. I don't know if I'm called to preach the good news. Check your feet. If your feet are cute, you're in good shape. You know who you are because some of your friends and family have commented. They've seen you in sandals and they well, those are really cute feet. I don't know. I'm called to this despite the look of my feet. So I remember being in Bible college in Boston and 
They put so much emphasis on our history and our legacy and, and knowing how, how the, um, the responsibility has been handed down from generation to generation. Our school did a great job of always looking backwards to, to honor the past in that way. And um, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I, we had a kind of a relic that we would preach from. There was a pulpit from one of the greats, and I honestly can't remember. It was either Spurgeon or Jonathan Edwards or D.L. Moody. It was one of those three of the great preachers, and we had a pulpit that uh, somehow someone got a hold of um, that we had in our school. And I remember as young preachers, we'd kind of be like, I get to preach behind the big pulpit, you know, the cool one. You hold the wood, and somehow you feel the, the energy of that preacher coming through. We were probably a little young and foolish, but, but the point was still conveyed. You carry a great responsibility when you open the pages of this book and you stand before the people of God. Don't take this lightly from, from your father's fathers that came down to you. You and I need to do what we can and what we should to preserve the gospel's legacy. Or as Jude says in verse three of his short little letter, that we're to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I'd say that Peter is also telling us to embrace the gospel's impact in the moment or of the moment. And there's this tiny little phrase that fascinates me at the end of verse 12. He says that we are engaged in things into which angels long to look. We know that angels are very involved in the interaction between God and mankind. And we know that, that angels protect us and they, they speak to us, they confront us. And we have illustrations and examples in the scripture of an angel appearing and everyone just hitting the ground like, I'm undone, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. And, and we know that they're very involved beings of the Lord. But yet there's this piece of them that is just outside of what you and I experience. And the scripture is saying that they're basically, it literally says they're peering over in great interest. They're fascinated with the way that this whole thing unfolds. They say we've been, in a sense, I don't know how it works, but coming back and forth and engaging with people and reporting back to God. And we're watching how all the events of history are coming in. I wonder how they're going to do. I wonder if they're, they're slipping, they're slipping. Someone go, encourage, go now. I don't know how it, how it happens. But I do know from what Peter is saying is that they are completely riveted in what's happening. I don't know what that does to you. I don't know if that freaks you out. I don't know if that compels you. There is an appropriate pressure of the crowd that is to fuel our endurance. I got to experience this last summer. For the first time, you know, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. And for the first time, I was able to make it to the Special Olympics um, meet up in Orono. And, um, and, and I, was, I was blown away as I was watching our athletes, you know, Ronnie Hood and Lisa Wade and Trevor Perry, as I was seeing them compete. Of course, it was, it was beautiful to watch and it was such an encouraging environment and all of those things were great. But what really struck me was how motivated they and how so aware they were of who came to see them and how much that mattered to them and how much there was like a smile on their face as they were competing because they know who was proud of them, who was cheering them on, who was fueling their fire. You can do it, you can do it, you can do it, go. And I'll never forget that. And now I'll always picture that when I come to this passage in Hebrews 12, verse one and through three. Scripture says, therefore... 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, every hindrance, every encumbrance, and the sin which so clo- which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the finish line, he endured the cross. He endured the race. He endured to the end, the finish line, despising or rejecting or just dismissing the shame that came with that. And is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Come on, you can make it. Keep going. I'm here waiting for you. I arrived. I'm true. It works. So the scripture says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, all the beatings, all the tortures, all the, the murder, so that you may grow, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. This morning I'm calling our church to find strength from the very weighty responsibility that has been handed down to us from the gospel. All three players in Peter's text, the prophets, the preachers and apostles, and even the angels demonstrated deep interest in our demonstrating deep interest in the outcome of our faith, the salvation of the souls of many. I'm also calling us to find an identity in a deeper history, one that predates the last several hundred years even, and hang on to the promise of a more secure future. One that isn't going to realize itself or reveal itself in the next election cycle. So that we aren't too attached to the present. We engage in the present. We take responsibility for the present. We do what the Lord's leading us to do for the things that he has put on our hearts. But we don't wrap our identity. We don't hang all our hopes. We don't, we don't lose our minds, dare I say, when those things don't seem to be paying off. When they're not realized, we know that it's not supposed to. And then also I would say I'm calling our church to change their approach to reaching a hopeless generation. I have had an interesting view outside my office window. We're right next to the medical offices over here. And and every once in a while, there's enough commotion or activity out of my periphery. And if I'm reading or something like that, I take a moment to observe life. It's nice to see other human beings once in a while. I saw a couple of guys sign languaging to each other. And that's always pretty fascinating to me. And my wife's side of the family, there's several of those that sign really um, proficiently. They serve in their church with ministry or they part their occupation is to is to communicate that and everything. And so it's always very fascinating, very beautiful for me to be able to see that. I don't know how to do any of it. And I'm watching these guys, a couple of young guys and everything, just communicating and just being real uh, demonstrative. And it's really neat to see. But then something occurred to me. Part of their communication is hindered. If you know anything about folks that rely on sign language, they're also able to read a lot in facial expression and mouth movement. They can read lips really well for the most part. These guys had masks on. And so a portion of their communication was greatly hindered. Perhaps you could even say a lot of the emotional aspect of their communication was was robbed from them because of the times that we're in. And that got me thinking about this. I'm like, this is where we're at as a church, where we're speaking a language that not many speak. And, and depending on what, what things hinder us or block us from being able to express freely what the gospel of Christ is compelling us to, 
a lot of folks are missing the message. Do we just say, well, we're going to wait until we can take our masks off so we can actually communicate better? Or are we willing to say this is a temporary present obstacle that we need to work around? Maybe I get more expressive with my hands. Maybe I start bringing out a flip chart and start painting pictures. I don't know what the thing is, but I've got to change my communication strategy because just doing what everyone else is doing isn't advancing or moving the needle for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I sound like them, if I react like them, then I'm trying to sell a living hope. It doesn't work. Everyone's hope is dying as we established last week, even in Peter's time. The times that we're in are not easy. The challenge is not real. Um, It doesn't seem solvable. That's why the gospel has a deeper calling for us because the gospel answers the troubles of our day. Will you and I surrender ourselves, our lives to it, be transformed by it so that when we communicate to a lost and dying world, they hear what we're saying, regardless of all the masks metaphorically that we have to wear that are hindering some of our speech and our communication. Would you stand? Let's pray together and uh, close out our time. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for bringing us together. I thank you, Lord, for helping your people endure. I thank you, Lord, for the spirit of this particular body. And I also pray, Lord, for the the other churches in our area that are, are struggling as well, but also seeing life and growth and change. Lord, I'm so encouraged by what you're doing in our area, even though the situation looks so bleak. Help us to believe beyond headlines. Help us to believe beyond Facebook comments. Help us to believe that your work is happening because this is your church and you're preserving it for your glory. So Lord, help us to want to, to desire to, to continue to participate in this great grand design that you've established since history. Lord, we thank you, God, for meeting with us today. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.